Welcome to Bestek, the Public Procurement Podcast. Today, Marta and I are talking to Stephen Schooner about sustainability and public procurement in the US and publishing in American journals. Welcome to Bestek, the Public Procurement Podcast. In this podcast, Dr. Willem Janssen and Dr. Marta Andov discuss public procurement law issues, their love of food, and academic life. In each episode, Willem, Marta, and their guests search for answers to intriguing public procurement questions. This is Bestek. Let's dish up public procurement law. Good morning. Good afternoon, everyone. Hello, hello. How are you? It's great to be here. And I have to say, I applaud both of you for this enterprise. I'm really impressed with the, uh, the fact that you started this and that you've stuck with it. And my only disappointment is I'm not in Utrecht doing the recording because I really wanted to be there to experience your bicycle infrastructure. But I expect we'll get back to bicycle infrastructure <laughs> as we talk about where we're trying to get over time. So we'll come back to that. Well, I'm sure we'll totally get back uh, get back to that. Uh, I have to say, so we're, we're broadcasting live from two continents in three countries at the moment. So Marta's located in, in Copenhagen. Steve, you're in, in in Washington, D.C. at the law school there, and I'm in, in at Utrecht uh, in my attic whilst the rain is trickling down my window. So uh, let's let's uh, let's see where that takes us. Um, and uh, before we get started, it, it is my pleasure to to introduce uh, you, Stephen Schooner, Professor. Uh, I don't think you require much uh, much introduction, to be honest. I hope not. But but, but I, I'll still give it a very brief, with your permission, uh, go. The Nash and Sibonich Professor of Government Procurement Law at the uh, George Washington University. And um, you started talking about cy- cycling already, so I'm not too nervous to, uh, to, to actually say that, say that you're also a passionate cyclist. Is that correct? Absolutely. And on a good day, I bike commute, but we have relatively good infrastructure here, but definitely not up there with the best in the world, but I think we're moving in the right direction. I was amazed actually because when I when I visited your law school in 2014, I actually cycled to work every day. And for for if I may say so, for an American city, uh, it's very very much possible to cycle to work there. So uh, fond, very fond memories. Outstanding. Well, come back soon. <laughs> <laughs> I will. We might have to do a cycling trip with the three of us. Um, but what are we talking about uh, today? Uh, what Marta and I, f- I think, fascinates, and what I think fascinates you as well, Steve, is, is sustainability and, and public procurement. Um, and we're seeing that happening all over the world, where sustainability considerations, objectives, climate change objectives, social injustice objectives are. Uh, or at least touching upon the, the, the sphere of public procurement uh, and public procurement law, sometimes to a m- stronger degree than, than other times. But I think also particularly in, in the U.S., that's interesting to, to, to discuss today. Uh, that's for our main and for, for our dessert, we're looking at publishing in, in American journals and perhaps we'll also be so, um, so naughty to, to also look at the, the, uh, the differences between American legal culture and, uh, and European, and we'll see where where all of that uh, where all of that takes us. Um, and to to kick that off uh, as an entree um, in the spirit of this podcast, and I, I think that's also why Marta and I started is this um, this our love for food and perhaps also a glass of wine to go with that. But of course, um, th- that we find that the most memorable conversations, also content wise, have always happened after the conference has ended. So, um, Marta, you rightly posed a very important question um, uh, in, in the lead up to this episode for, for Steve. Um, what's your most memorable conference dinner and, and why? 
Well, the best thing about talking about this is it's the opposite of the unbelievably large number of unbearably boring post-conference dinners that I've been to. <laughs> but I, I will say, particularly since we're talking about food, far and away the, the most wild experience or memorable one I've ever had, I have to go all the way back to the 1990s when I was still doing procurement policy at the White House and China had begun the process of drafting their public procurement law. And the evening after the big formal banquet, which was hours long and course after course, it was quite an extraordinary experience. The last evening, we went out for hot pot at an extraordinary facility that on stage, they were literally alternating professional acts and karaoke. And so I was there with a number of delegates. It was a massive table. But because it was hot pot, everything on the table was raw. And furthest away from the VIP were things like vegetables and starches. And as the evening progressed, you worked down the table towards dessert. And for the duration of the meal between me and John Colling at the, at the time, the head of procurement policy for the United Kingdom, sat on the table a plate with an entire raw pig's brain. And that was dessert. But it was very, I have to say, it was quite distracting over the duration of the evening. But overall, the food was terrific. The company was great. It was obviously being in China. It was obviously, you know, fascinating being in China. And for me, it in many ways was the beginning of a unique opportunity over a couple of decades to now work in more than three dozen countries, uh, working on public procurement reform, seeing the trends and the like. But that was a good one. So I have to ask, did you get to dessert in the end? So one of, <laughs> yeah, one of the things they had taught me at the White House in our policy briefing is that in terms of being polite, if you touch it with your chopsticks and put the chopsticks in your mouth, you've tasted it. And so I had very much, at very least, tasted that. But uh, it, all kidding aside, that was not the weirdest thing I ate on that trip, but we can talk about that another day. There, uh, plenty of room for another episode, it sounds, already. Um, fantastic. So... Um, I, you probably haven't been at a lot of conference dinners with with Marta and I because I find that we've only had fun conference dinners so so far. Uh, that's we've had, we've had a great <laughs> streak so far. Um, uh, let's um, let's really uh, look at some uh, some substance now, right? Sustainability and public procurement in the U.S. Maybe you could um, uh, help our listeners a little bit by um, sketching the landscape. What is what does the U.S. look like in terms of public procurement and um, uh, sustainability? Just before I would let um, obviously Steve to to jump in, I think maybe just in a two sentences why we wanted to have this as a topic, having in mind that predominantly our listeners are European, uh, because sustainability kind of seems to be developing in context of public procurement around the globe in a bit different. Um, trains of thoughts and practices, right? Um, something that we also discussed in this podcast already, the social element of sustainability is much better developed outside of EU in many ways uh, than it is in the EU. We seem to be going quite strong on the environmental aspects for some time, but undoubtedly um, often when you exist in this academic or even broader, just uh, public international public procurement environment, you always look at some point to United States. And I still remember um, some years ago when we, Steve, talked about it, there was absolutely no interest and we almost been perceived a little bit as tree huggers uh, with our sustainability approach to public procurement. Seems that waters change a little bit. Um, so so it will be really interesting for you also maybe to give us a bit of context 
What do you think caused that change? Because the discussion about sustainability, I imagine, have been for there for some time. So that just to, you know, kind of establish the link to what we've been doing here before and where we are right now. So, so many interesting ways to start, but let me begin where Marta was, and that was, in many ways, the United States public procurement system was long ahead of the global curve in terms of taking into account what we often called social and economic factors, or what we often describe in the classroom as collateral policies. In other words, the government used its enormous buying power to create opportunities for small businesses, disadvantaged firms women-owned businesses, areas of high unemployment. Um, We had preferences that basically gave minimum uh, wages and benefits. But compared to most countries, the United States was quite aggressive in using public procurement as a social and economic tool. But to Marta's point, particularly for the last 20 years, the United States has been not just surprisingly, but painfully and breathtakingly slow to recognize how important it is for government to take action with regard to climate change. So interestingly enough, I I love some of the stuff that the Sapiens Network is doing, particularly with the PhDs and the breadth and depth of how they define and think about sustainability from a kind of a holistic or almost kind of a circular economy approach. But in the United States today, The primary discussion of sustainability is almost all with regard to climate change. And I think one of the hardest things for many people who are new to the area to appreciate is the difference between thinking about what you, how you react to climate change in two categories. So one thing that our government's doing a little bit better at is focusing on how we adapt to climate change. But I think by almost any objective measure, In the United States, the public procurement system is failing miserably with regard to efforts to mitigate or slow down the pace of climate change. So you could think of it as kind of a tale of two cities. And I would invert it and say, you know, in terms of the worst of times and the best of times, what what I find most frustrating about sustainable procurement with regard to climate change in the United States today is how little the practice, the policies, the concepts, even the vocabulary of sustainable procurement has failed to resonate or become part of the profession's body of knowledge or core competency. Um, Around the world, we have a pretty robust discussion. You know, as you all know, I go to a conference in Europe and any public procurement conference is dominated by discussion of sustainable procurement. It's hard to get it on the agenda at a lot of the conferences in the United States. People just don't really talk about it. And why, do you, why do you think we, that is? Yeah, great. Well, all the same. Great, yeah, yeah. great timing. <laughs> so, I mean, it, it's hard for me to overgeneralize with regard to the general American reaction on climate change. But the reality is, is, you know, big industrialized nation. And for most people... Uh, We don't have the worst case scenario of, for example, sub-Saharan Africa or something like that. And people are cognizant of it, but there are so many issues out there and the government isn't sending strong messages on climate change. And I think that, you know, whether it's it's just uh, discomfort or whatever, but look, let's go back to where we started. In the United States, we are a car culture. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, the car is the the definition of freedom. It's the definition of success. It's the definition of style. It's in movies. It's in TVs. It's in culture. The fossil fuel industry and the automobile industry are on your television set every day. And any message about the fact that burning fossil fuels is problematic is absolutely drowned out by that. And without going too far down that rabbit hole, um, there has not been strong government messaging. And in the last presidential administration, climate change denial was relatively popular. So we had to start rebuilding again just in the last couple of years. Go ahead, Marta. Yeah, I think that what also interests me to pick your brain a little bit about it, because you know, we can how we can bring this conversation again to be relatable to 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 a lot of um, our listeners here. It's a little bit like discussing, you know, European approach, European approach from from EU legislator in many ways as a as a policy setter, as a standard setter. And the tale of uh, ultimately all these different EU member states that in their developments, they are quite different. So to to dig a little bit deeper, Steve, I wonder um, how you would describe, you know, we, we very often say places like Scandinavia are extremely green and always historically been very green. Uh, places like Netherlands, they've been always really good about the social inclusion element, accessibility, right? The biking lanes so strongly um, part of the culture. Um, would you also see a sort of different tiers of developments across US? And then I don't know, saying that um, New York or California or Arizona is better in some aspects than others. Could we could we sort of have that type of mapping exercise? Or um, is it so confound uh, to ultimately federal procurement that the focus really is that that, that you don't really look much into what states are doing. No, I, I think you make a really good point there. And here, maybe this is helpful for the average European listener, but, you know, so I tend to specialize and our curriculum tends to be focused primarily on federal or United States central government procurement. Now, look, this is a massive market. We're talking about over $600 billion a year that the federal government spends. But compared to the 50 states, compared to the municipalities and the regional instrumentalities, For anyone who's traveled to New York, for example, we have some massive regional instrumentalities like the New York Port Authority. Um, In Washington, D.C., we have regional tri-state D.C., Virginia, and Maryland. We have an airport authority and the metro when you ride it. That's a tri-state authority. But the bottom line is it's, it's very, very disaggregated. So to Marta's point, I do think that the federal government has been a little bit slow But a lot of people often look to it to lead, so that makes it a little bit more frustrating Mm. that they're not leading. There are a number of states that are doing some terrific things in public procurement. For example, I think most people would probably start with California, Massachusetts, maybe New Hampshire, as states that are doing creative things and have completely different priorities. But I also want to be clear that just because I might be frustrated that as a whole, at a macro level, the federal government isn't doing as much as they could be doing. They're doing some incredible things. I'll give you just two quick success stories real quick. Now, on the one hand, the United States was, in many ways, somewhat of a leader with regard to adoption of echo labels with regard to electronics. If you're in the United States, the Energy Star logo is ubiquitous. And all government information technology basically 
has that efficiency pre-qualification. But Energy Star as an entity is a great success story in terms of using more efficient electronics. The other thing is the federal government has been creating powerful tools for people who know where to find them and are interested in using them. And so one that your listeners might be interested in, and while you're listening, you can fire this up on your laptop or your computer. There's something called the SF tool or the Sustainable Facilities Tool. And it's a large and complex webpage, and many parts of it are referred to as the GPC, or the Green Procurement Compendium. This is an enormous, sophisticated, data-rich tool that helps buyers and sellers in almost every conceivable market. It's wonderful. There's only really two problems. Most people who would benefit most from it don't know it's there and don't use it. And many people, when they use it the first time, they throw up their hands and go, oh my gosh, there's so much information. I'm just totally overloaded. So there's a lot of work being done to make it more accessible. But I think there are some success stories. But the big theme comes back to, I think, where we started. Climate change is a really, really big issue. And if we care about our children and our children's children, we, particularly our governments, need to do more and we need to do it faster. And the reality is, is that's where I think our government is failing worst. And that's where I think the inability to get the procurement system moving is most problematic. So I think your call to action is, is very clear. Steve, you, you say climate change is pressing almost unprecedented in how enormous this challenge is. We need to use public procurement in that sense. The government and mostly the federal government, like you said, <clears throat> is moving too slow. There's good examples, perhaps, to be given here. There's some front runners, uh, perhaps also on the state level. So um, I'd, I'd like to move a little bit towards the, 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 the legal discussions that are, that are taking place. So when we, when we look at sustainability in Europe, I see two main points of discussion, and perhaps Marta can add some, but <clears throat> one I think always is, how does sustainability fit within market integration? So how does sustainability fit within the principle of non-discrimination or transparency? How do you make these sustainability considerations more transparent and equal, right? How does it not lead to discrimination? And on the other hand, we've seen this move from possibilities to, to procure uh, uh, sustainable outcomes in the legal framework towards more mandatory requirements, right? So there's, I think, two main developments that have happened over the last couple of years. And of course, we've gained more room to do so. <clears throat> since the 2014 directive. So that's really what's been happening, I think, in a nutshell in, in Europe, right? When we talk about legal integration of sustainability in, um, in public procurement procedures, what does that look like in the US? So what, what discussions do you face? So say, let's, let's be positive, let's be optimistic. Say the government gets their act together and in a general sense on the federal and the national level, we move towards, yes, we want to be, procure in a sustainable manner. What legal discussions will pop up or are already perhaps popping up? Okay, so, so let's start. I, I love the fact that you said we shouldn't dwell on the fact that currently in the United States, the legislature is entirely broken, defective, and non-functional. So let's hope that's a short-term... I was trying to be positive. <laughs> I, I appreciate that. Let's assume that's short-term and transitory. So let's do a little bit of good news. So one thing that the current administration has been doing is they've literally been publishing almost a tsunami, a wave 
of executive orders and memoranda mm. projecting policy. And while it's easy to dismiss that, I think one of the most important things to say about that is it is important to walk the walk, to talk the talk before you try to walk the walk. And the other thing is leadership's really important. So it's it's much, much better than nothing. Did you want to jump in on that, Marta? I just wanted to ask you for a clarification for our potential um, listener. So the executive orders, what is a legal standing of that? So is there something um, happening, let's say, if particular authority that this executive order is addressed to is not following it? Is it very soft law type of instruments? Or you can hold anyone responsible to... Uh, the fact that they're just ignoring it, just so we get a sense, you know, in this legal context where that is. Yeah, so the concept of the executive order is something that in our constitutional and administrative law classes in the United States, we mm. can spend the rest of the semester on. Okay. But I'm going, I'm going to just summarize <laughs> Give me bullet and points. say that the president of the United States has a tremendous amount of power over the executive branch. And so executive orders can often drive, particularly in the short term, very significant effects. Okay. Obviously, the legislature can derail those or change them, as mm. can the next president. So they are often considered short term. They are considered suboptimal. And sometimes they are very, very significant. And sometimes they're just a Band-Aid. Mm -hmm. But at least so far... The executive orders have been mostly, I don't want to say cheerleading or um, basically projecting policy because they don't immediately result in regulation, but it's a move in the right direction. In terms of legislation, I think most people would say the most significant thing that happened in the last few years was the massive infrastructure reinvestment. So money became available, a lot of money to start updating our infrastructure. The problem is so much of our infrastructure hasn't been funded well for so long that a lot of the money is just being spent on continuing to widen highways and fix old bridges. But some of it is being used to invest in, for example, electronic vehicle charging infrastructure. But just going back to what we were joking about at the beginning of the session, I think one of the biggest mistakes that was made in that legislation is very significant tax credits were made were offered to Americans who purchased electronic vehicles. And I'll be the first to admit, uh, I drove a, a hybrid to a couple of hybrids for a couple of decades. I now drive an EV. I almost never drive, so I'm almost exclusively virtue signaling. But the average EV that was purchased in the United States last year cost over $50,000. So the tax credit was given to people like me who frankly didn't need it and were going to buy the EV anyway. Whereas had that tax credit been broken down into smaller pieces and been offered to people who bought electric bicycles or e-bikes, we might really change the way the nation moves. And so I think that's a good example of a slightly wrongheaded but well-intentioned policy. But, but let's go back just to, to in terms of where the rules are. So in the United States... Um, Congress legislates, the, the legislature makes laws or statutes, and we implement those statutes through regulations. The primary public procurement regulation at the federal level or the uniform central regulation is what we call the FAR, the Federal Acquisition Regulation. 
As a general rule, the federal acquisition regulation is a cradle-to-grave procurement regulation. It's very, very long and complicated. Frankly, it doesn't have much on sustainability. And what it did have was out of date and very, very confusing. So we now have two proposed rules that would change that. To my mind, they were probably promulgated as proposed rules out of order. But in effect, the second rule is what we think of as the housekeeping rule. In effect, what that rule does is it reorganizes, modernizes, and clarifies all of the various policies that are buried deep in the middle of the federal acquisition regulation that apply to sustainability. Most people didn't know they were there. Most people ignore them. And now they're going to be better organized and better written. I don't think this is the most important thing we could have done. The other rule, the one that was done first, is what we often refer to as the responsibility rule or the rule that requires, with regard to greenhouse gases or GHGs, that firms that want to do business with the government have to assess their emissions, they have to report or disclose their emissions, and they have to target reductions of emissions. Now, the interesting thing about the way that rule was done is it takes all of the burden and puts it on the private sector so that a government procurement official, what we call a contracting officer, they just have to check a box. So did the firm indicate that they have assessed, disclosed, and targeted? So in other words, if I write a report and say, I am a despoiler of the universe, I generate more emissions than any firm in the world, I plan to continue to do so, and I file that publicly, I've complied. Go ahead, Marta. Mm. Oh, this is interesting, you know, because we have to certain extent a little bit of a parallel discussion right now. And one of the legal acts uh, that is probably the most debated um, right now that comes out of this whole um, EU Green Deal is our... Um, Directive on due diligence. Is a directive or is a regulation? Dilemma? Directive. Okay. Directive, yeah. right? Yeah. It's a directive on due diligence. And it very much sort of, if we want to draw parallel, talks about similar aspects that, that you're talking about, that it not only moves the burden towards the companies of particular size, but it also binds them to really have a control somehow over their supply chain and so on and so forth. And this is something that we've seen a humongous amount of pushback from broadly, you know, corporate world um, towards this uh, this element. But I think also what I find a little bit problematic when I hear, you know, of this approach, and I wonder what you think, Steve, is um, there is a question of what type of data and what type of information you you get because you have this discrepancy between the competences, right? So I fully get and I'm a big supporter of trying to cut the red tape for the contracting authorities for the buyers. They're not specialized in that. If they can tick a box, great. But the part about that is how we check because, you know, no company is going to come and say, and say, we are really bad citizens. We pollute, we do all these terrible things. And then economically, it doesn't make sense for us to really target it extensively. So, you know, how we kind of look, how we operationalize really this type of regulation or this type of provision to for it to achieve the goal that we wanted to achieve. So there's so many important parts about what you asked, but let me try to do, let me break it into three baskets or food groups, and it may not be in order, but I think I'm going to try <laughs> to respond to you first. So 
Obviously, anytime we're talking about sustainability or reducing emissions, one of the concerns is greenwashing. So in other words, the fossil fuel generators in the United States, the, the, the extractive industries constantly have advertisements on televisions and in print about all of the creative things they're going to do mm-hmm. to distract you from the fact that they're the emissions generators, okay? So greenwashing is a concern and validation and quality control in the United States, what we would call FAR Part 46 or quality assurance, those are massive issues. So we need to come back to that. But I think going back to the beginning, there's two other aspects of all of the efforts to have the private sector measure, disclose, and target their emissions. One is just the fundamental cognizance or understanding of the greenhouse gas protocols. Now, look, these are international standards, and I'm guessing Europeans are far more familiar with them than in the United States. But when I go to a United States public procurement official, most of them couldn't answer multiple choice questions with regard to scope one, two, and three emissions. In other words, a fully qualified public procurement official who's an expert in the field is not required to know what the GHG protocol is. There's no reason for them to know about SBTI, the Science-Based Targets Initiative. There's no reason to expect that they would understand the difference between direct emissions, scope one, indirect emissions, scope two, or supply chain, scope three. All right, so this is really important. But the other one, and this is my biggest frustration with the responsibility rule that we've promulgated as a draft rule, and that is information about emissions generation and reduction is powerful, but what do you do with it? Mm. So it's one thing to say that I'm checking and I'm reporting, but I think what we really want is for like firms to be evaluated and a competitive advantage being given to the firm that reduces their emissions or produces less in the first place. And that's the value for money process. And we can talk a lot more about proposal and tender evaluation, but we haven't even begun that conversation. The last thing I'll mention on this, and this is really a heartbreaker, but if you were to get in the way back machine with me, way back into the mid-90s, we actually had a mandatory evaluation factor that said that when the government awarded a negotiated procurement, it had to take into account basically environmental considerations. That was removed in the late 1990s. But there is something to making public procurement officials understand that when the government spends money as part of effectuating the aspirations of government, one thing that government should care about is reducing emissions and making the planet more livable for our children and enhancing the welfare of all of their citizens today. But I think we really have our work cut out for us on anything related to emissions measurement management and what you do with that kind of stuff. I think your call for, um, I would say, more awareness about the topic, but also skills and knowledge uh, for for contracting authorities or public author- officials that are working in this field, I think is also something that is often echoed in uh, in Europe. So it'd be interesting to see also how these developments, um, I think, would compare in the future and what both sides of the Atlantic can learn from each other. And, and I think a really good example of that is, you know, if we were all in Europe together and we walked into a conference, it would not surprise me if on the wall 
we saw the United Nations sustainability goals um, on a poster and a significant number of the government officials had the beautiful colored wheel pin on their lapel. When we talk about the UN SDGs in the United States, the odds are far greater than zero. In fact, they're probably pretty likely. You're going to get a blank stare. The United Nations sustainability goals do not resonate in the United States. And there's a tremendous amount of cynicism about the United Nations. And to the extent that the United Nations is arguably one of the most cohesive voices and UNEP, the United Nations Environmental Program, is where so much of the initiative and the good information comes from, that's stuff that isn't always welcome in a lot of American conversations. And frankly, that makes it just that much harder. Can I just um, ask one sort of question that popped into my head around this conversation? Um, if you are right now, this is a bit addressed probably to some of our like young academics um, that might listen to us. Um, one of the ways that you most presumably came across a uh, name Stephen Schooner is due to the article, this desiderata objective for system of governmental contract law. And I see you both sort of shake your hand. I think, Willem, you read it during your PhD. I read it. I think we all at some point come across that, right? So I'm going to be purposely, because we're all friends here, I'm going to also purposely slightly be uh, sort of provocative in, in, in that, or maybe, or maybe not necessary. But I wanted to ask you, Stephen, in that context, you've been always very well known as someone that, you know, really emphasized the need and importance of open competition and competition element in public procurement, right? And... um at least in, in you know in our sort of backyard of, of European conversation, those two usually are um, to broader or shorter extent, but they usually are being somehow pitched against each other, saying you know that and, and that probably speaks a lot to the point or that you made about greenwashing and so on. But how you think those two work in the legal ecosystem? Um, to what extent we can also talk about, can we give some sort of priorities to one of the principles of the objectives? Do we need to balance them? How do you think we can go about it? Because I think also in an assumption, particularly in a highly litigious countries in Europe, um, when it comes to public procurement, you know, there's always this worry, right? The more sustainable we get, like, are we limiting the competition? Can that open us to litigation? Um, and I think that this would be super interesting having in mind that, you know, you, you've been really the, the man to discuss uh, competition long time before it was really kind of um, at the forefront of discussion in public procurement, the, the, the competition. Yeah, so I guess there's so many things that I want to say about this. And it's always funny because, you know, even to this day, so many students like that, what is perceived as a relatively accessible piece uh, written, you know, now more than 20 years ago. So obviously, like anything we've written or published, if I was going to write it today, I'd write it a little bit differently. Mm. But just a couple pieces of background. So in the United States, in many ways, the modern era of procurement begins in 1984 with something known as the CICA, C-I-C-A, or the Competition and Contracting Act. So when we reinvented our public procurement system in the United States in my professional lifetime, we identified competition as the coin of the realm. So when I originally drafted that desiderata piece, in any policy conversation or if we were doing law transfer, we would always begin with the three-legged stool. Most public procurement systems were designed 
focused on competition, right? Integrity and transparency, right? Transparency is everything because there's otherwise people can't really work with their governments. Integrity and corruption control has long been a dominating feature. And competition, the reliance on markets was considered to be the, the secret sauce or the thing that would animate procurement best. But I guess if I was going to talk about this today, and, and I don't know if this is the direction you were going on, and I don't think it answers your legal question at all, mm. but let me begin from the premise that like so many academics and other professionals, I was trained pretty deeply in economics growing up, right? That's what we studied in college. I went to special summer programs in it. We studied it in grad school. We wrote about it. But economics dominated public policy conversations throughout my lifetime. Climate change is the single most dramatic example of market failure in my lifetime. Now, I've spent years truly enjoying the growth of the behavioral economics movement, okay? And, and I know that Willem wants me to, to just not go too far on this, but let me just say that climate change reminds us that economics isn't going to fix this. So we can come back to that. But, but I do think that we need to come to grips with the fact that governments need to prioritize. And if there's any message from the original Desiderata article is that you can't have everything. Governments have to decide this is more important than that. And yeah, I don't know if your kids or, you know, if kids in Europe grew up with the movie The Incredibles, but the message from the movie The Incredibles is when everybody's special, nobody's special. And the same thing is true with procurement policy. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, perhaps this was a, a slight nudge to, towards a Desiderata 2.0 at some point, but we don't want to force you to write anything. But I think it would be really interesting to hear your thoughts on that. And if your thoughts have changed or if they're the same, you know, in a different in different context. They're very, very much changed. But, um, but what, what a takeaway. Climate change is single factor, the largest economic failure. I think I'm going yeah, I, to... I, I, I think it's a it's a remarkable example of economic failure of of market failure. Mm. I mean, if if you believe that markets will save us, I have some really bad news for you on this one. The, b before we get too into too many dark spaces uh, in this in this podcast episode, let's um, let's wrap up Maine. We talked a bit about, um, uh, or actually a lot about sustainability and public procurement in the U.S. What's the status? This clearly, as you noted, Steve, still a lot of work to be done, but there's some positive developments as well. And I think what will be really interesting is to see how this uh, responsibility rule will work out, right? And, and I think your call to action when you said um, it's not just about disclosure and making sure that the data is right, but about actually doing something with it, right? In a competitive sense and giving that competitive edge. And I think that's really important. I think that's where the US and Europe really meet each other in, in trying to make that uh, work. Yeah. And I guess the other thing I would add is one thing, if you read the international standard, one of the global best practices that hasn't really been embraced in public procurement in the United States yet is what we often think of as life cycle thinking or life cycle cost analysis. And I think that if we're going to have a serious conversation about sustainable procurement in the United States, we need to totally rethink our assessment of what value means. Mm. And in order to do that, what it means in economic terms is we have to internalize our externalities. And so the tyranny of low prices, which drives supervisors to say, I cannot afford to pay the price premium for the less harmful or the more sustainable solution, we need to reject that. 
Governments today cannot afford to not pay the price premium. You have to, because there's nothing more important to governments than the welfare of their citizens and the future of the planet. So I think that's a really, really big deal. And I love the fact that you all have, in many ways, been on the forefront of having a more robust conversation about life cycle analysis, life cycle thinking, and internalizing externalities. Very valuable addition uh, to my brief uh, brief recap. I think uh, life cycle cost analysis is definitely the way forward. Also sitting in with Marta, I dare to say that, knowing that she's the editor of a book on this topic. Um, but I wanted to get Shameless to uh, I wanted to get to pigs' brains. I wanted to get to dessert, if that's if that's allowed uh, in this episode. Um, so um, what we were thinking about when we prepared this this episode is obviously every legal scholarship culture has differences, right? All across the globe, of course, there's similarities as well. But sometimes when we look um, when we look at the United States, uh, we see um, we, we see differences with how a publishing culture. Um, comes about and also how legal academics write their pieces. So I was wondering maybe uh, for you to kick off, uh, uh, Steve, how do you look at that? Uh, do you see great differences here or, or are they just, are we simply the same? Oh no, I think they're quite different. And, and I don't want to spend the remaining time we have talking merely about the fact that we as Americans tend to be a bit long-winded, our articles tend to be a little bit longer, and we as Americans tend to really like our footnotes or as our journal editors say, we like the below the line stuff. And for anybody who's read my stuff, I love long footnotes. It basically gives me the opportunity to talk about all of the things that really don't belong in the article, but I can't stop thinking about. Uh, but so obviously let's put aside length and footnote content. But I think one of the most dramatic differences for people who are trying to get pieces placed is understanding that compared to many academic environments. In the United States, we almost kind of do things what you might perceive as backwards. It is common to think in a professional field that the best journal, the most elite journal, would be the one that is peer-reviewed by the very, very most qualified, highly credentialed academics. But interestingly enough, in the United States in the legal academy, the very, very best, the most prestigious journals are literally managed and edited by students. Now, let me be clear. They're very, very good students at very, very good schools. But one of the things you have to appreciate is that for a journal that published a small number of pieces and receives submissions from an extraordinary number of sources, the pressure to gravitate towards the middle or the accessible you know, we say in the United States, constitutional law is a game that everybody can play. Our Supreme Court publishes less than 100 decisions a year. Everybody knows what the Supreme Court's doing. Those seem really important. Everyone can talk about that. But that's the mainstream stuff. But what we often see is that student-run journals have a number of, shall we say, susceptibilities. And so uh, I, I would never suggest that if you are submitting pieces from outside the United States, you really, really need to focus on your introduction and your conclusion and make the hook incredibly accessible to, for example, a 24-year-old who's never practiced law. And also understand that during the editing process, you can actually rewrite it a little bit later and you may not have to do all those things that originally caught their eye. But it's a little bit pathological. 
And what's particularly frustrating, going back to the original question, is the elite journals are typically less well circulated than the specialty journals. So anybody who knows our stuff, me, my colleague, Chris Eukins, Jessica Tillotman, Joshua Schwartz, we tend to publish primarily in specialty journals. They have much higher circulation rates. And more importantly, the people who we want to speak to are actually reading them. Mm. Mm -hmm. So it's a little bit of a difficult choice because for things like getting an academic appointment, getting tenure, getting promoted, you need to be in the mainstream journals. But by no means would I suggest that my most important writing is in the generalist journals. Um, that stuff's done because you have to. But again, very, very different cultures, I think. I think there's also some big difference with regard to how much journals cost. Uh, I love the openness of many of the European journals now, um, where basically everything's being put out into the public domain. But um, frankly, a lot of Americans are stunned by the prices of some of the journals in Europe and other countries. Yeah, very, very different cultures. Yeah, and I see also what, what I think is interesting about it. I think the context is different and maybe the specifics are, are different, but we do tend to have many of these debates in Europe as well, right? About how important it is to have a certain frame when you submit it to an editorial board in a, for a European uh, journal. And then often it, 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 the content might be fantastic. I mean, every piece that you submit, of course, you think is fantastic, or at least maybe I suffer from that disease. <laughs> Once I've looked at a piece for long enough, I always love it. Um, but I, I find that that's definitely in Europe uh, quite a strong thing. Hey, you've got to get past the editor's desk, and that generally is the introduction and the and the conclusion that you work uh, you work with. And I think what's interesting is it's interesting you mentioned that as well is also the work that you've been doing on SSRN, uh, Steve. I think with with open access publication, it's still a long way to go in Europe. I find with uh, with fees, and it, so I, I really like what you said about finding the right audience, right? Who can I target, right? And leaving like academic positions and steps aside, like who needs to read this and where can you have the biggest impact? And I find that that's often uh, quite, quite important. And Go I ahead think and that jump we, in, Marta. Yeah. And, and, and I think that, you know, it goes without saying also that it depends what type of privileged position you have or you don't, right? I think that, you know, when you full uh, professor and you establish and you kind of tick various boxes, Probably there's a yearly sort of checkup on where you publish. And, you know, again, culturally that can be quite different. We know the ref system in the UK makes everyone go mad, right? Um, and we all have some sort of version of that. But when you're climbing, I think that there are the challenges and 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 and, and requirements that uh, you need to meet that are that, that, that sort of um, box you in certain directions that you may be not that interested in. And I really like what, uh, Steve, what you said which is ultimately at some point when you have the privilege of deciding what you want is it doesn't matter how highly it's ranked, but you want the right people to read it because those are the people that can take it, run with it and hopefully implement that, right? Right. And to the point that was made a little bit earlier, one thing that we've really been working on for a number of years is trying to exploit SSRN, the Social Science Research Network, to use it as a global platform for bringing together, consolidating, and sharing useful public procurement um, scholarship. And if you haven't been on SSRN before, uh, try to use the JEL, the Journal of Economic Literature Codes. I think most people who are listening to your podcast would be interested in code H, 
um, 57, which is public procurement, and L33, which is outsourcing and public-private partnerships. And we also try to consolidate the articles through our um, government contracts and public procurement outsourcing e-journal, which should be free to most users. But we've, we've collected about 550 articles from all around the world there. But again, I think one of the hardest things is most of us, other than as Marta points, you, as an academic, you do have to write, you do have to produce, you do have to move through the ranks. But most of us are writing because we want people to read and be influenced and think about what we're writing. And so as we get better and better at sharing that, whether it's SSRN or through Google Scholar or whatever, I think we really need to work together as a community to make our work more broadly available. And I think perhaps this podcast episode was a small step in that direction, right? Is that we can share some of the thoughts that you've had in the past and that you have now, Steve, about sustainability and public procurement in the US. As you can notice, I think we need to we need to wrap up this this episode. Um, it, it's been a pleasure speaking with you uh, this morning, afternoon, uh, from Copenhagen, from Utrecht, from Washington. Um, and can I thank you so much uh, once more, Steve, uh, for, for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me on. I hope to have the opportunity again. Best wishes to all of you. And of course, I think that with the way we started this episode, I think a cycling trip with helmets and, and in the Netherlands with the three of us is in order anytime soon or in the coming years. But we'll we'll post some pictures about that later on. Um, we'll, we'll wrap it up from here. Um, this was Bistec, the Public Procurement Podcast. This was Bistec, the Public Procurement Podcast. Do you want to contribute to today's discussion? Then share your thoughts on LinkedIn or Twitter. Do you have an idea for a future episode? Write to us at www.bistecpodcast.com. Thank you.